All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Micah chapter 6. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that, that I want us to walk away with this morning. It's that God calls us to repentance as evidenced by the relational fruits of just living, loving kindness, and walking humbly with him. Let me say that again. God calls us to repentance as evidenced by the relational fruits of just living, loving kindness, and walking humbly with him. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Micah chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this text, I've got a question for us as, as we begin. What evidences to you that someone is truly sorry for what they've done to offend or hurt you? Is it enough to just make some sort of verbal apology, but no behavioral change, right? Is that actually truly repentance to say, I'm sorry, but then do it over and over and over again? No, that's not really repentance, is it? That's not really restoration or that someone is truly sorry. No, there, there must be a, a, a making right of the thing that was wrong. 
right? Even if they were to give you a lot of material things in return for the hurt they've caused you, does that really make it right? It doesn't, does it? Only when you actually deal with what the issue was and could continue to be, can there be any sort of restoration, right? Well, the same is true of the Lord our God. He's not interested in our outward shows of religious fervor. He's not interested in us uh, trying to keep some sort of laws and other things for his sake. No, that's for us. Like, remember when we've talked about before that if we could have been alive uh, or, or part of the sacrificial system, one of the things we would have noted was the assault on the senses, the smell that would have come from slaughtering animals, because animals do interesting things when they die, as do humans, and the smell of blood and the, just all of the, the, the screaming of the animals, it would, just, would have been an assault on the senses and it would have really had an impact. God doesn't need that. We do. Like the, the, the stuff that he gives us that is, is religious practice, right, good habits, virtues, that's for us to better know who he is and better understand the depths of his love for us. And that's what we're going to see here as Micah speaks. But remember, this is a courtroom drama. And so what's happening now is we're beginning closing arguments, right? Remember, the Lord had called everybody to gather together. And he took to task the people first for their greed and their covetousness and their, uh, just their failure to love the poor, the commodified exchange that those relationships had become. And then he took to task the civic leaders and the religious leaders who were also commodifying the people, not holding them accountable, but choosing instead to consume them for their own gain. And so then he goes on to tell them there will be hope, if you remember. Like there's these wonderful displays of the new heavens and new earth and the shepherd who will come. And the people think, okay, well, that gets us off the hook, right? No. They have to go into exile. And he makes it very clear to them that all of their opulence, that all of the good that they had, instead of that, that helping to make them a more gratitudinous people that would draw closer to him relationally and to each other relationally, it had instead driven them from each other and from him. And so he was going to take it away. And they would only find redemption in Babylon. Now, we want to be careful in turning that into just a singular law. That pattern does repeat but it, it's not the way that it has to be, right? We as God's people can be a people of gratitude and recognize that we've been given what we've been given to give it away, to be good stewards of it, right? The parable of the 10 minas, the parable of the, the talents, those are parables that teach us about what we are to use our things for, to help the kingdom get bigger, right? To, to help other people know the glory of God in both word and deed. And so it's not a foregone conclusion that we're stuck having to repeat this cycle because of Christ. Christ has come, and he's coming again, and we are filled with the Spirit. And so, therefore, we can actually live in a manner of obedience that doesn't keep us from suffering, by the way, because if you're in union with Christ, what's guaranteed? You will suffer, and that's unique to this side of the not yet. But it doesn't mean that you suffer because of judgment. It means you suffer for something. It's meaningful right? And remember, judgment always precedes uh, redemption. 
and that it's an instrument of God's redemptive work. And so, as we hear these closing arguments, keep that in mind. God is going to speak first, and then Micah's gonna step in for not just himself, but on behalf of the people, and then the Lord will conclude. So hear what the Lord says first. Arise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Now, something that you will note in Scripture that happens, particularly in the Psalms, but in other places, is creation is called on to bear witness. We're going to see this when we get to Romans chapter 8 after Easter. Uh, we're going to see that, that creation stands on tiptoe with neck outstretched is the actual Greek rendering, but creation longs to see the sons and daughters of God revealed. It longs for all things to be made new because it too is under a curse. But it has witnessed longer than any of us have. Creation's been around longer than us. It's not eternal, but it's been around since the beginning because it's the first thing he made. It has bore witness to the goodness of God to his people. And so here he says... If you've got a charge against me, tell it to the mountains. They're the ones who have seen. They will confirm or deny. Creation will confirm or deny whatever it is that you have against me as my people. And then the Lord says, hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. So he gives the people an opportunity. Raise your voice. Let your voice be heard. You have an indictment against me. Let's hear it. I have one against you. And he goes on to say, uh, an indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will, he will contend with Israel. And then, before the people can even speak their indictment, he says, the Lord, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I who have provided, who have redeemed, and he's going to go through and give some historical examples of the times he has preserved and, and saved his people physically, not just spiritually, but in real time. They would have these wonderful examples of where God had been good, and not just creation can testify to that, but they should have been hearing this from their mothers and fathers and grandparents and great-grandparents and leaders. This should have been the story that was being told over and over and over again, the redemptive story of God. And he gives them some examples. He says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Arian and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him. Again, he stepped in when a pagan king tried to rout his people and, 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 and uh, attack his people and take over. The Lord did that. He protected them. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So he's saying, here is my, the evidence of my love for you. Now, consider how we too should practice this often. We too, in a positive way, instead of waiting until judgment falls, we should regularly recount the goodness of God in our lives. Parents, grandparents, family members, this is one of the great ways you can help disciple the next generations that are in our midst. Teach them to be able to notice where God is good in great and small places. This is one of the reasons we here at Christ Community Church challenge you to, on the Lord's Day Sabbath, which is today, take some time to, to reflect on the Lord's goodness from the past week. Show of hands, how many of you have ensured the CO2 exchange in your lungs 
and that your liver rightly processes your blood. How many of you ensured, made sure that was a fact this past week? Show of hands. I mean, I drank some beets every morning with some, with some apple cider vinegar. That, that, that helps some stuff, right? Kinda, but it doesn't ensure that all that happens, right? We can work alongside or we can work against, but either way, you're here today physically because the Lord has preserved you. Give thanks, right? That's a simple one. There's many more, many more places where the Lord steps in and where the Lord is just kind and good and he preserves and he provides and he blesses. And we would do well to become a people who are able to see that readily and help others to do so as well. This is one of the great ways we can serve each other as a church to point out where we see the Lord at work in other people. Too often, we, we fail in this, right? And it's not to beat you up on that, but it's something we can grow in. It's something that we, we can actually serve and, and help each other out in. And so here he's saying, he calls on these historical examples and calls them to look because creation has bore witness to it. And so we too must do the same. You, you ought to kind of hear the words of Jesus here. My yoke is easy and my burden is light compared to the weight of sin, which is death, right? The, the, the Lord Jesus makes it clear that he doesn't weary us. He set us free. We're going to hear in Romans 6, which is coming up uh, after the new year. We're going to hear uh, Paul declare, we have been set free from the slavery of sin just as they were set free from Egypt. We ought to be a people who are quick to give thanks and bring no charge against the Lord and never claim that he wearies us with what little he asks of us, or better, that we would recognize what he invites us into, this grand, eternal story for which we would do well to have our imaginations and our wonder and our awe stirred daily, but certainly week in and week out. Now, the Lord rests for a moment, and Micah steps forward. And remember, prophets often spoke on behalf of the people back to God or on God back to the people, depending on the circumstance. And so Micah is standing in that place, speaking on behalf of the people to try to help them understand how they should respond. Now, before we get to Micah's words, we need to understand Micah was preaching in the 700s. Right? He had about a 30 to 50 year span. Uh, Judah and, and, and the southern kingdom doesn't go into exile until 586. So there is a long period of time from the pronouncement of judgment from Micah's mouth till it comes to pass. Now, why does the Lord do that? Well, because he's calling them to repent. And here, Micah's going to declare what that repentance should look like so that they don't sit around and twiddle their thumbs wondering when judgment is going to fall and instead proactively take up the means of grace and respond to what they're hearing from the Lord their God. Notice that God doesn't want the commodified exchange. He doesn't care about commodities. He's got the cattle on a thousand hills. I've said this before. What is it that any of us could ever do that we could take to God and him go, I, I never even thought of that. Like, I never even considered that. I, I, didn't, I didn't make that. Did you make that? That's not what he does. Instead, he takes the, the really bad finger paintings that we offer up and he puts them on the great fridge in the new heavens and new earth. I don't know why they need a fridge in the new heavens and new earth, but there's something it'll be posted on because he loves us just as we love our children, even when they don't bring us masterpieces, but we're thankful that they even thought of us. Notice what Micah says. He says, 
with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? So what he's teaching them is this, what the Lord just said we need to respond to. We need to have a response. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000s of rivers of oil? Now, this is, these are things that the, the people of God were called to use on the Day of Atonement and called in other festival circumstances to respond with. So is, is, is Micah suggesting that they no longer have to do those things or those things were meaningless? No. What he's saying is that the purpose was for us. God doesn't need all that stuff. We do. We need to be reminded. The rivers of oil should remind us of the anointing of the Lord and the power of the Spirit, the refreshment of the Lord. The sacrificing of the rams, the sacrificing of any of the animals should remind us that there's a deadly cost to sin. It's not cute. It's not casual. It's costly. God doesn't need to be reminded of that. He knows. We do. But what God requires, and and, and even Micah spins it up further, He gets really, like, drives it all the way home. He says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Which God required that? Molech. All the pagan gods required child sacrifice. The Lord doesn't require us to sacrifice our children, the next generation. No, he wants us to raise them up so they would be set free. He wants us to let them know of of the goodness of God, of the glory of God. He would never ask us to put them on an altar. You may say, well, what? what about that Abraham story? How did it end? What about the fact that God puts forward his own son? a sacrifice, so that we would have newness of life, so that, and you may say, well, that's eternal child abuse, not if you raised from the dead and are able to enjoy all the fruit of passing through that fire. It's part of the sanctification process, part of the redemptive process. And so Micah spends it all the way up to the most treasured thing anyone could have, and, and look at his answer. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? So, this ain't a riddle. This ain't as complex as we try to make it. And if you notice, what, he, what I'm going to read here next really could be summarized this way. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as you have been loved. He says, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, let's talk about doing justice for a minute. We mentioned this earlier in the series. Remember, justice is relational, right? True justice means someone is welcome at your table, right? They've been restored in shalom and peace. They can be part of the family. It's not just some commodified thing where you help them out and then they they go do their thing and you go do your thing because, you know, birds of a feather and all that nonsense, Now, true justice says to someone, I love you so much, I want you to be part of my family. I want you to have what you need to flourish. I'm going to esteem you as greater than myself. We read that in Philippians. Esteem others as greater than yourself. And so justice is not something that is abstract. It is not something that is void of the gospel. So I want to pause here because I'm afraid for many of you, and remember what the devil wants to do. The devil, his goal, I need, he just needs to steal a few words from us. 
He don't even need to do all that much. It'll pay dividends across the board. If he can grab the word justice and take it out of the hands of the church and take it out of the hearts of the church, look at the damage it does. If he can get us to divide over the word justice, do you see the dividends? And so if you, when I said do justice, the word social justice crept across your cranium. You need to put that to death. You need to mortify that concept where it is not appropriate. Now, where is the word social justice appropriate if I were discussing justice apart from redemption? Right? If I were to say, we must atone, we can only be saved if we do these just acts. Is that what he's saying here? No. What he is saying is if you are saved, you will be a just people. You will fight for the things of justice. You will care about the marginalized. You will care about the widow and the orphan. Not just that they have what they need over there, but that they would truly be welcome in your home, which is a complex thing, having done this before. So, social justice is justice for which you must atone, and Jesus ain't part of it. That's kind of, in short, that's not always what it means, but just for those of you. So, you cannot let the devil take the biblical word justice from you by letting social jump in front. And every time you hear us talk about justice, you think we're talking about something that's unbiblical. There are others of you who hear justice and you only think spiritual. You disembody justice from the relational. You actually disembody justice from loving your neighbor. And really you're disembodying it from loving the Lord your God. If all justice is, is to make sure that people get saved and we could care less about them being fed or taken care of, well, There's a whole list of scriptures, probably close to 400 of them, that would suggest otherwise. You cannot disembody it. So for those of you on, and I hate to put it on sides, but it's where we are. So for those of you on the other side of that social justice chasm that think it's only spiritual, you're wrong. That's not biblical. God cares about, remember, when he fed the 5,000. Why did he feed them? What does it say? He had compassion on them because they had been following him and they were hungry. That's pretty simple. He had compassion, if you remember, on the Canaanite widow, right? When she comes to him and says, please, would you heal my daughter? He doesn't even look at her. It's one of the most interesting exchanges in scripture. And he makes this statement about he didn't come for those kind of people, meaning Gentiles, right? Which is everybody who's not a Jew. And she says, because she's persistent, Oh, but even the master allows the dogs to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. I will take the crumbs. And Jesus turns and says, your faith has made her well. He recognized the necessity for redemption, for things to be made right, not just when he comes. And we are to be the instruments of that. Remember Matthew 25. Remember all these passages about justice that are relational and redemptive. It is both and. And that is where we, the people of God, in order to love our neighbors well, have to become a more just people. Now, this is not easy. It is complex, having served at the rescue mission for 10 years, having been on staff at Strong Tower, right, and having lived among the poor, having grown up poor. We're not easy folk, right? And we ain't exactly looking to hang out with uh, affluent white people either. 
right? Like we're not looking for friends necessarily. And so, and it's not easy, especially if you have an addiction issue, if you, if you have a sordid background of some sort, this, it's not easy to hang out with folks who homeschool. That's not your fault. I'm not, that's not a denigration. I'm just telling you, right? It's, really, I'm just telling you, sometimes the gap feels so far. This is why Jesus must go across the gap. This is why Jesus must put together that which has been rent asunder. This is why caring about the physical nature of someone is truly resurrection care. So do justice. Don't let the devil take that word from his church, from from the Lord's church, and from his people. It's one of the main ways in which we evidence the gospel in this broken and fallen world. And he says, and to love kindness which some of your Bibles might have mercy and some may have steadfast love, but the point is that we would be a forgiving people, that we would want the people in our lives to experience the forgiveness, the profound forgiveness that we've experienced in Jesus, that we would long for the putting back together that which has been rent asunder, that we would want people to be free from the the, the burdens of shame and guilt and sin instead of putting them down, and as I said last week, to ask a fallen world to keep a law it doesn't understand is cruelty. Absolute cruelty from the church. Because we ought to know better. Paul's been telling us better in Romans, right? And we're going to hear more about that coming up in 6 and 7. And so it is very important that we recognize that we should be the swiftest to seek forgiveness, even when it's hard. You may not always understand all it's going to take, but you got to step into it. We've got to be those people who broker forgiveness, broker reconciliation, broker restoration, not add to the, 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 the din and the cacophony that is the present um, discussion about so many things. And then it says, and to walk humbly with your God. How arrogant we can be, reformed folk. How often we think we understand mysteries about eternity past or eternity future. We don't even understand some of the mysteries of the present. How arrogant at times we can be thinking that we are the arbiters and we figured it out. If we have figured it out, we should be insanely humble because we figured it out so as to give it away, not point out why everybody else is wrong. We ought to be humble because we are the created. We have, we're limited. We, each person doesn't have all the gifts. We need each other. The church has to have all of the gifts at play. We can't just be a church full of eyeballs or belly buttons or whatever body part we t- tend to be in the reform camp, <laughs> armpit, whatever. Uh, and so it's important that we, we recognize in humility to walk with God not in fear of man, not in fear of judgment even. We should tremble at judgment. We should recognize its awesomeness. We should recognize its gravity. But we also should recognize it is a gift from the Lord. I had a conversation with a guy that's currently serving as my mentor. He's 20 years my senior, and he's been a pastor for a long time. And this guy, we were talking, he was talking about how good humiliation is from the Lord. I, I tried to hang up on him like three or four times because I don't want to hear that. Like, because you know, once you hear it, and that's why I'm passing along to you all, it kind of goes into play, right? Like it starts to become a concept that is going to stick. And so, but he, he showed such evidence of humility in walking with the Lord. He just wants the Lord to be pleased with his, his service to him. He's 69 years old. 
He's accomplished a ton. He is incredibly well-respected. Everybody loves this guy. What more could he need? Well, he constantly wants, longs for the Lord to be glorified, and it's convicting. And so this is who we ought to be. We ought to be people who are humble and recognize who God is and who God has called us to be. And so this is to be our response when the Lord steps up and says, I have an indictment against you. This is to be the evidence of our repentance. This is how we know. We can look at our lives and ask, hey, am I growing in loving my neighbor and loving God? Because if not, that's going to have to get corrected. That'll have to be disciplined at some point for your good and the good of the world. Now, you may say, well, that's, that's just Micah. I mean, you know, Micah, he, he may have been crazy. Well, let's uh, look at another prophet just real quick so you know that this is a, a, a biblical theological concept. Let's hear from Amos just real quick. And I'm not even going to give you any commentary because I think he says it so plain, you ain't going to need it from me. I'll pick it up in verse 21 in chapter 5. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like the ever-flowing stream. This is to be who we are, right? We were, we're, justice should flow from us. And again, things are complex. It's not always easy. There's ways in which we have to wrestle with that, but some of us aren't even willing to wrestle with it. We've got to have conversations about it. We've got to talk about our fears and our, our, our barriers and our concerns, and, and, and we've got to talk about what, all right, what then are we supposed to do in my spheres of influence? Where can, how can I be just and love uh, mercy? Kindness, and how can I walk humbly with the Lord my God? Now the Lord, after Micah has showed them, here's how you need to respond. The Lord speaks again. This is the closing argument. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Now what does that bring to your minds? What other book of the Bible that we just recently went through in part? Well, it should call to mind Proverbs. Right? Remember, Lady Wisdom cries aloud in the marketplaces and in the cities, and she calls people to repentance. She calls people to fear the Lord our God because that's the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise? You want to know some things? Fear the Lord your God. And that means that you're both in awe and in wonder, but also that you recognize he is holy and other, and that should cause us to tremble and want to know how do we please him. He goes on, hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Now, if you remember from last week when uh, the, the, the prophet or the Lord through the prophet spoke of the shepherd who was going to come from Bethlehem and the people got all excited and were like, ah, not one shepherd, we're going to have seven. We're going to swat that stuff in the deep seats. One of the things they talked about was that the rod was borne by the Assyrians. They got that wrong too, by the way. Who bore the rod? Although the Assyrians were the instrument, from whose hand did it come? The Lord our God. It is interesting how we at times are real fluid about God's sovereignty. 
We're we're, we're strong on God's sovereignty for most everything until it comes to somebody personally offending us or somebody calling us to repent. That can't be God's sovereignty, can it? You better believe it is. You better believe it is, whether it's right or wrong, whatever you do with it. at, At some point, we have to admit the Lord has brought all this to pass, which should affect our anger, our anxiety, our confusion, and how we respond. And so this is the Lord. And he says, Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with bags of deceitful weights? Again, and we talked about this before, who usually suffers because of the uh, uh, um, wicked financial practices of institutions? The poor. It was interesting, I saw an article, there's some billionaire who's worried about inflation. Really, like I would read that article if it was like my neighbor next door, right? Like who, who just works a normal, she's a real estate agent. Like if, if, she, if she starts talking about being worried, okay, I'll listen. But some billionaire? And you may say, well, no, you should really be worried when the billionaires are worried. Eh, it doesn't quite work like that. He's, gonna, he, he's probably gonna be fine. Uh, he may have to suffer be, just being a regular old millionaire, but uh, I hope he'll make it. Right, but, but so, so usually the poorest of the poor are the ones who suffer the most. This should matter to us, the church. This is throughout history. Redlining. Who did it affect in our country? You know what redlining is? This is not something just made up, by the way. It's a real deal. It was a way in which to keep poor African or even middle class, even upper middle class, African Americans from being able to live in certain neighborhoods, which, by the way, affects what else? why Why did you choose the neighborhood you're in? School system, safety, security. This was a practice that has gone on for a long time. It actually, by the way, still goes on in some measure, right? And so how is that affecting entire communities of people? And what does that say from a justice perspective in terms of relationship? You may say, well, have you, I won't go into it, never mind. (laughs) But it's very important that we recognize that these things have gone on since we have figured out how to ruin other people's lives. And we always go after the lowest of the low because they can't fight back, right? You try to go after some billionaire, you try to take something from him, guess what he's going to do? He's going to expend some of those resources to make sure you know you better never try that again. But other people don't have that kind of voice. Poor folks, just when it comes to the legal system, it is a vastly different experience if you can hire a good lawyer. Now, I thought the law was blind. Turns out she ain't. And so, the Lord can't sit by and just let that go on forever. He must deal with it. Now, he says, your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. Now, for those of you who are worried that I'm fixing to flip Marxist and go against capitalism and talk about the ills of rich folks... Let me put that to rest real quick with the Bible. If you would, turn to 1 Timothy 6. This is a very important passage because by virtue of most of the world's standards, almost everybody in this room, with the exception of maybe the RUF students, is rich. I don't know each of their circumstances, but I remember when I was in college, rich was not a word I got, that got used for me often. Now, I'm going to pick it up in verse 17. 
Here what, here, this, this is how we ought to deal with this issue. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty. What does that mean? Don't be arrogant. Don't be prideful. Don't go around flexing your cash and talking about how blessed you are and not be generous. Notice what he says next. Not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So if you are rich, enjoy it. Enjoy it, as Ecclesiastes would tell you to do, because it is fleeting and it ain't going to last. Ain't going to be here forever. So you might as well enjoy some of it. But also, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So, is it bad to be rich? No, but it's dangerous. Why? Root of all evil is money. You can't serve two masters. Mammon or God, you don't get to do both. What he's saying here is recognize you've been given the ability to make the money you have or it's been passed down to you generationally or, or you've come into it some kind of way, but it's to be used for good, which part of that good is your enjoyment. Do you hear that? It's okay to buy a really nice bottle of bourbon <laughs> or a cigar or whatever else it is, a nice car. If you've ever driven a really nice car, like I, I always grew up being like, it don't make no difference. And a friend of mine had a Ferrari. He let me sit in it. That was about it. <laughs> but even just sitting in it, I realized I was wrong. <laughs> Terribly wrong. Right? Clothing, like nice clothes. Uh, I, I used to, I, when Target opened, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I thought, man, these are some nice clothes. They're better than the Walmart stuff. And then somebody gave me a Tommy Hilfiger shirt. And I was like, whoa, where, 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 what is this? Right? Back in the day. It's different. Maybe y'all don't know all that stuff. But it's okay for you to enjoy it. Just remember where it came from. Give thanks. Walk humbly with your God. Do justice. Love mercy in your richness. Right? So I don't want you, anybody to walk away saying, man, Cameron took rich folks to task. The scripture's not doing that. But if you're going to use your money to commodify other people, then it is evil. That is wickedness. And the Lord will not tolerate it. Eventually, judgment must come. And notice, the punishment fits the crime. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. You, uh, and there shall be hunger within you, and you shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You know how painful that is? to store up all that stuff and have somebody else come along and take and do whatever they want with it and destroy it. You will sow but not reap. You will tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. He's basically saying your life will become a meaningless cycle of just misery. That is the punishment. Have we not seen this? Have we not seen examples of this? For people who make these things their idols, some of those unhappy people... I I've ever met in the world are people who have way more than I do. Not always, but sometimes. And he says, For you have kept the statutes of Omri and the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their councils. And, and what he's talking about here is they were the North Kingdom. They were the ones who came up with the false worship and the false priests and all this wickedness that filled the land 
Well, the folks in the southern kingdom just perpetuated it. They went right on with it. And the Lord said, I got to make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Now, here's the good news about Advent. It is Jesus who bore the scorn for us. It is Jesus who heard as he hung on the cross the hissing of those walking by who said, you think you're so powerful? Climb down off the cross. Spit at him. Gave him that sour wine. Stabbed him in the side. Treated him poorly. All because he loved us so that we would not have to bear that weight. And amen. That's the beauty of Advent is as we see here what the people are having to bear because we who are in union with Christ, we don't have to bear that. Now, do we get disciplined when we lose our way? You better believe we do. That's what makes it all the worse, actually, that we would not be a people who love God and love neighbor as we ought. Listen to what Dale Ralph Davis says about this passage. He says, Micah is not charting out the way of salvation. So he's not talking about salvation by works. He is reasserting how those who are objects of God's grace are to live and respond to their God. And he begins by saying there is nothing mystical or esoteric, no guesswork about the matter. For Yahweh has told you what he wants. That is, he already made it clear in the law and the prophets. He is not looking for frenzied activities, but a faithful life. Now, here's my question, and I do hope you will take this seriously. Now, don't give me this nonsense about false humility, about you You can't ever talk about your good works. That's bad. No, you can't. You should do so rightly. You should do so humbly, right, so that you know. Paul says this. He says, I judge myself long before you guys do. How are you growing in your love for your neighbor and for God this Advent season? Now, you may say, I mean, I'm too busy to be growing in love, Doc. I got Christmas presents to get. I, you know, um, I got to pick up stuff for Wes and Kelly's deal afterwards. It's just crazy. I'm busy right now. Okay, that's not a bad confession, but repent. Change. Grow. It's not the end of the world. Run boldly to the throne of grace to receive what you need because you need mercy and you need grace. And we need to be able to assess, are we growing in these things? And then what evidence is your growth in these areas? Is there growing affection for God's word? Is there growing affection for God's worship? Is there growing, a growing affection to see things made right? Do you long for justice to be part of your spheres of influence? Do you long for others to be forgiven? Do you forgive? When's the last time you forgave somebody? If you ain't forgave somebody in a while, you must not be interacting with people. You get plenty of opportunities. We all do. And so Micah 6, 1 through 16 teaches us that God calls us to repentance as evidenced by the relational fruits, and notice that, the relational fruits of, ju- of justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with him. Christ Community Church, would you join me in longing, desiring Uh, putting forth the effort because of what Christ has done for us and because we are filled with the Spirit and have every resource we need to grow in love for him and love for our neighbor. We gotta start where we are. This isn't a competition and it is to God's glory. Our names don't even need to be known. 
May it even be somewhat anonymous in some respects. And so would you join me in longing to grow in these ways? Let's pray. Father, (laughs) thank you that you warn us. Thank you that before judgment actually falls, there's the pronouncement that grants us the opportunity to respond with repentance. God, I pray if there's anybody in here this morning who doesn't know you, who is, who is angry with you or is trying to selfishly define themselves instead of be who you created them to be in union with Christ, I pray that they would repent. If there's anyone in here this morning who hates the word justice, who doesn't like the word mercy, who could care less about humility, Lord, I pray they would repent and truly be drawn to you to be restored in the goodness and the fullness of the person and work of Christ who came to redeem us, to reveal your glory so that we we could be instruments in your redemptive hands, that we would become his hands and his feet. God, I pray that you in the power of the spirit would show us where we need to repent so we can grow, where barriers need to be removed, where priorities need to be rearranged so that we can actually grow in these things. God, would you help Christ Community Church grow in its love for one another so the world would know who we are and its love for those in our spheres of influence and even more for the love of the lost, that we would long for the family to get bigger. And would you help us in loving you to walk humbly with you according to your word, not our twisted interpretations, not not our foolish desires, but according to your love, your holiness. May we honor you. In Christ's name, amen.